0: That's Wise W-I-S-E.com. Wise.com. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month
1: What's going on with men? The question sounds strange and maybe even a little parodic, but it's one people are asking more and more, and for good reasons. As we discussed on this very show last year, men are indeed falling behind. Whether you look at education or the labor market or addiction rates or suicide attempts, it's not a pretty picture for men. And the numbers have garnered a lot of attention in the public discourse. Normally, more attention on a problem is a precursor to solving it. But that hasn't really happened in this case. Instead, the conversation on masculinity feels stuck. It rarely moves beyond banal observations. Masculinity is toxic. It's socially constructed. It's under attack. You've heard all this before, I'm sure. But what does a more productive conversation on masculinity look like? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Great Area. Today's guest is Christine Emba. She's a columnist at The Washington Post where she recently published an essay titled, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. The essay, and I apologize for the cliche, but it fits, is one of those pieces that broke through. Besides just being well done, I think the reason it landed is that it tackled a very controversial subject in an admirably nuanced way, which is why I invited Emba to join us for a discussion about the masculinity crisis. She became interested in this topic a few years ago when she was writing her book on relationship culture called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. She interviewed men and women for the book and noticed that a lot of the men she spoke to were confused about their roles and their place in the world and really what masculinity means. Since then, she's learned a few reasons why men might be feeling confused, and that's where we started our conversation. Christine Emba, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: well, you are you're now one of our rare repeat guests. So I guess that officially makes you a friend of the show. Ooh. So I'm sure you weren't prepared for that uh, for that good news. So there you go.
2: I love it. Friend of the pod, please. <laughs> friend
1: of the pod. <laughs> um, one of the things you point out in the piece is that, worrying about the state of men and manhood is a very old American tradition, in your words. So what is it that makes this moment different or seriously worthy of our concern? If this is just something that's always in the ether, why is this something we should really be paying attention to now?
2: Yeah, I mean, so totally, it's something that we've always done. I quote everyone from Washington Irving to Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in the piece as having complained about masculinity in the past, but. In this moment, I think that we actually now have data showing that men do seem to be in a real crisis. And we also have data on how the world has changed. And I think we can all see this even in our own lives. Our social structure, our work structure, our economy has changed really significantly over the past 30 to 40 years. And that necessarily changes how people fit into the world. And I think a lot of the changes have had a direct effect on men specifically. So, you know, we can look at the stats that we have right now about how men are doing. And we see that for every 100 bachelor's degrees awarded to women, only 74 are awarded to men. We know that when you're looking at deaths of despair, which is sort of a more recent phenomenon, three out of four of those deaths are males. And I mean, they're like social factors too. So a change in who is seen as a, or who is rather a high earner in our society. So in 2020, nearly half of women reported in a survey that they out earn or make the same amount as their husband or romantic partner. And in 1960, that was fewer than 4% of women. So we've seen the economy change in ways that have, you know, moved away from the strength jobs, the union jobs and factory and labor jobs that were traditionally sort of seen as male jobs and helped promote this idea of the man as the provider who can take care of a whole family on one income towards these kind of soft-skilled credentialism favoring jobs that tend to favor women. And then because of the feminist movement and women's advances, which to be clear, are great, <laughs> very supportive of this change. Women have just entered schools and the economy in force and they're doing really well. And I think men are beginning to feel a little bit worried and lost in comparison.
1: You use the phrase deaths of despair. For people who may not know what that means exactly, what does that refer to? Are we talking about deaths from suicide or deaths from drug overdoses, these sorts of things? Just can you clarify that?
2: Yeah. So, deaths of despair was a term coined by Case and Deaton. They coined the term deaths of despair to refer to deaths from either suicide, drug overdose, or alcoholism related deaths. So, things like cirrhosis. And these are deaths that they're not sort of random accidents. Like, generally, people who are despairing, end up committing suicide or drinking themselves to death or overdosing.
1: The college numbers, that's wild to me that for every hundred degrees awarded, 74 are to men. And that's, unless I'm wrong, that gap appears to be growing as well more and more every year. Do you have an explanation for that? Did anyone you talked to for the piece have an explanation for that? Or is it just something we're observing and nobody really knows why?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's pretty startling. I mean, there's sort of further numbers to back this up that you can also frame interestingly. So when Title IX was passed in the 70s, the ratio of men to women was, you know, there were a lot of men in college and many fewer women. By now, that proportion has actually kind of flipped in women's favor, there are more women enrolled than men. And one might even say that maybe men need Title IX in some way. They don't. Actually, you wouldn't say that. But the proportions are startling. And there are a couple different explanations for this. And Richard Reeves, so I, I think maybe you had on the show. We have talked about this a lot in detail in his book of Boys and Men. And I think you could say that it starts from very early on, actually. So the way that our school system is set up, Reeves and many others theorize, tends to favor students who can sit still and be quiet and, you know, raise their hands and answer questions and focus. <laughs> and generally, girls mature in sort of this area more quickly than boys do, so they excel in school earlier and faster. As we have far more competition for academic and college slots, we look at test scores and grades a lot more. And of course, if girls are doing better in school, then they have better test scores and tend to get admitted. Also, there's an interesting question theory about just being prepared for college. And this is also maybe a maturity thing. Statistics show that it's not just college entrance, it's college completion that differs by gender. So women graduate in four years with pretty strong regularity. But often young men, it seems, are much more likely to drop out or stall out. Like they just kind of aren't really ready for college and sort of take a break and maybe don't return. (laughs) So you see women just graduating with degrees at higher rates in four years. But if you expand the timeline to like six or seven years, actually, the proportion gets better, but women are still ahead. And then, of course, there's just been like a a big effort to help women enter college and enter various fields that previously seemed kind of confined to men. So, you know, there's a big push for STEM education for women and telling girls that they can go to college and become scientists, astronauts, etc. There are lots of scholarships. Affirmative action, which was maybe just rolled back, um, actually tended to benefit women more than any particular race?
1: Obviously, I think you would like to see more parity in college just for its own sake. But this is a real problem for the reason you mentioned a minute ago, that because we live in a post-industrial world where these soft skills and academic credentials are so important for getting a good, sustainable job, right? The fact that men are dropping out more and more of college just feeds into this already intensifying problem of working-age men just dropping out of the labor market. And the biggest group dropping out is in that 25 to 34 group of working-age men. I mean, you can just, again, you play this out long enough and you could see what a real problem that this is for our society.
2: Right. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest drop in employment has been among men aged 25 to 34. And in general, wages have stagnated, but especially for men, except those at you know the very, very top of the ladder.
1: Surprise, surprise.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh capitalism. But I mean, even if you talk to college admissions officers, sort of off the record, they will tell you that they're already doing a sort of soft affirmative action in many places for men because there are just so many fewer men applying to colleges. And college campuses are less attractive to potential students if they have really poor gender parity. And this is something that a lot of colleges are seeing and and struggling with right now.
1: Well, something you deal with in the piece, and we have to deal with here is the fact that a lot of people, especially on the left right now, don't want to talk about this problem. We just kind of want to just circumnavigate it all together. Do you have a theory of the case for why that is? Why is this something that so many people have such difficulty talking about? Forget about proposing solutions or something like that, but just diagnosing it seems to be a thorny spot in the discourse. Why the hell is that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so this was actually one of the major inspirations for writing this piece, because I was trying to get at that question. And I even felt as I was working on this piece, like my own reluctance in some ways to attend to it empathetically. And I theorize that there are a couple reasons for this. First of all, justifiably, I think, progressives and people on the left want to preserve the gains that have been made for women over the past several decades. You know, the feminist movement and movements for women's equality are still pretty fragile. We saw during the COVID-19 pandemic that suddenly it was women dropping out of the workforce and mass. And it's really easy, I think, on the left and just in politics generally to think of things as being zero-sum. So there's this fear that if we start helping men, then we'll just have forgotten about women and there won't be space or time for women anymore. And I think that's a mistake. I think we should be able to do two things at once, recognize that both women and men are members of our society and we should want to help all members of our society. So that's just one part of it. I think there's also something really appealing to someone with a progressive mindset about like an idea of gender neutrality or gender neutrality as an ethos that we should aspire to and not making distinctions between men and women are masculine and Feminine, or at least just rejecting sort of an idea of gender essentialism. Because, A, I think we have moved in liberal society towards an ideal of individualization. The idea that there could be, like, one form of masculinity or manhood that's good risks alienating people who don't necessarily fit into that box. And then, like, ascribing certain traits to men, especially if they're positive traits, maybe worries people that we're subtracting those traits from women. Like, if we say that men are leaders, does that mean that women are always going to be followers? Or if men are strong, are we actually saying that women are weak? And so I think there's a fear, a fear of doing that. And then finally, I think there's just a sort of generalized resentment, especially after the Me Too moment in 2018, but also for a lot of the, I think the 2010s, as I think a pretty silly and uncritical form of the feminist movement, sort of made man-hating and misandry into like kind of a joke and a badge of honor, where it was just cool to be like, men are trash, men suck. Wouldn't the world be better without men? What are they even for? And there's sort of a, a feel that you kind of still need to do that to sort of prove your good liberal bona fides and that you like love women enough. And there's also the fact that because progressives in the mainstream just have not really taken up the masculinity or men question, the people who have taken it up tend to be on the right and often they tend to be uh, problematic, like unappealing figures. You see, you know, incels and men's rights activists and Ben Shapiro burning Barbies, and there's a sort of fear that if you speak up for men, everyone's going to be like, uh, why are you—you you seem too interested in this. Are you one of them? It's like a branding problem, almost.
1: One of the many consequences of what you're describing right now is that the left, for all of these reasons, has sort of ceded the space to the right— and the right has happily, very happily, filled the vacuum. And the results of that, I would say, have not been awesome. So what do you see happening with people like Jordan Peterson and someone like Andrew Tate, who you also write about in the piece, As You Must? Now, these are very (laughs) different people. I want to be clear, I'm not equating Peterson and Tate, but they inhabit this space in different but revealing ways. So what do you make of those two in particular and the phenomena they represent more broadly?
2: Yeah, super interesting question. And I do think that it's important to try and draw distinctions between, there's sort of a spectrum of what I call in the piece, the manfluencers. God, I hate that
1: word. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I (laughs) <laughs> it's totally understand The manosphere, manfluencers, just, just, God. Okay, sorry.
2: Like those those yogurts that they were selling a little while ago. That was like, it's yogurt, but it's in a black container because it's for men. It's mogurt or something. <laughs> um, yes, anyway. Anyway,
1: as you were. I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's a ridiculous word for a ridiculous phenomenon. But there is sort of a range from people who are maybe slightly more benign. I think Jordan Peterson started out as more benign, although he's gotten fringier since, to people like Andrew Tate, who I think are just straightforwardly bad people. And you have also sort of Josh Hawley and Joe Rogan and Bronze Age pervert and all these people in between. But yeah, I mean, I think it is just factually accurate that conservatives and the right have always been more invested in, and more clear about roles, like straightforward roles for people and what people should do. So it's almost natural that they just have a clearer vision of like, this is what manhood is, this is what men should do. But I think, you know, they realized that there was an opening here. Young men especially are simply looking for role models and realizing that they feel unsure and uncomfortable of their place in the world. And when someone asks this, you know, or says this aloud, like a young man who I interviewed for the piece was just like, I just want someone to tell me, to tell me how to be. <laughs> if the progressive left is like, we're not going to tell you that, just be a good person. You don't need rules. And then young men are like, no, I'm I'm really asking you. <laughs> I, I really want rules, actually. The right is happy to give them those rules. And so they have kind of stepped up and as you said, filled the vacuum just by saying something, just by acknowledging that masculinity or manhood is a thing and that they can talk about it. And also, I would say very importantly, by talking about it sympathetically, Yeah, by really appearing to or at least seeming to empathize with feelings of loss that young men are expressing. Um, if people have sort of an identity as A man or masculine, the right is not going to say it's toxic and only talk about toxic masculinity, but they also try to talk about or attempt to talk about positive things about masculinity and actually make it out to be something that you want to aspire to, that's actually transgressive and great and like historically superior to whatever's going on today, for better or for worse, depending on how they frame that. And Being told that your identity is actually a a positive, good thing, and here's a roadmap to how to fulfill it, a clear map that you can follow, whether it's good or bad, that something is gonna beat out nothing anytime.
1: Why are figures like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate so appealing to young men? That's coming up after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it
0: Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit Wise.com. That's Wise, W I S E.com. Wise.com.
1: There was, I don't know maybe like a five-day window, where I thought Jordan Peterson was actually saying interesting things, Mm -hmm. or certainly things that verged on the border of interesting. And then he careened into some very weird places. But from the beginning, I have always thought his widespread appeal, the fact that he resonated, was so much more interesting and important than anything he actually had to say. And you went to one of his talks. What (laughs) was that like? I mean, what did you learn about his appeal to the young men, and it was mostly young men, who showed up there? That had to be some kind of revelation for you.
2: Oh, it was so eye-opening, actually. I mean, I went because I'd heard about Jordan Peterson online and was just curious about why he was suddenly popping up in my feeds everywhere. So I just got tickets to his... First book tour, the 12 Rules for Life book tour. And that book was just like a surprise runaway bestseller, like millions of copies sold all over the world. And <laughs> I arrived at like the, it was like at a theater in downtown DC. The audience was at least 85% male. And the only women there were clearly either moms who had brought their sons or like long-suffering girlfriends who had brought their boyfriends and I actually came with a male colleague of mine from the post because I was writing about this for the post and just everyone assumed that I was his girlfriend who was just like there supporting him <laughs> <laughs> um but it was just like full of young men who are so excited to see this guy and you know I was in the audience like kind of shit talking Jordan Peterson being like his suits very lame like what what's the deal here <laughs> And this guy who I was sitting behind just, like, turned around and was like, Jordan Peterson taught me how to live. I was like, oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Without a hint of irony, too, right?
2: No irony. Like, totally straight. And, you know, Peterson climbs on stage and he does his Peterson thing. He sort of, like, glares into the audience and starts with, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? And he's, like, staring at these young men in his, like, three-piece suit. And... He's just, like, talking to them directly. He gives them, like, some what I think is pretty basic advice, like, stand up straight, don't tell lies, make your bed. But while he's giving these these pieces of advice, he's also, like, talking about how he sees how men are struggling and how hard it is out there. And at one point, he cries, and, like, there's sort of a melting in the audience as all of these young men are like, yes, he sees me. Like, finally, someone sees my struggle. And that's really what it is. I think all of these young men felt recognized and felt that somebody was speaking directly to them as men and showing them how to be, like giving them really clear instructions for what to do to be a good man, which is what they wanted. But maybe in other circumstances weren't sure whether like that was allowed in some way, like Do you want to become masculine if masculinity is toxic? And how do you do it? Where's the roadmap? Peterson's like, no, it's not toxic. You should do it. And here is a very clear map to follow. And there is just such a hunger for that.
1: Well, on the other side of that, you have Andrew Tate, whereas I think there is something earnest about Peterson's project, or there certainly was. I think he's ran into some personal issues uh, that may have derailed him a little bit. But I do think there was something earnest about what he's trying to do. But Tate... Tate, to me, is what happens when masculinity becomes steeped in fear and resentment. And let's just forget about Tate, the individual, for a second. I think he is a a grifter and a performance artist in lots of ways. But as I was just saying about Peterson, it's the reasons for his appeal that should concern us. And with Tate, unlike Peterson, there is no pretension to anything virtuous. It is just, hey, the world hates you. The world wants to make you weak, wants to make you soft, so take what you can get, crush your enemies, abuse women, double down on everything they hate about you. It's the weak person's vision of a strong person, you know? It's the 19-year-old Nietzsche reader who didn't make it past the preface, you know? (laughs) And I don't think a lot of people quite understand the reach Andrew Tate has. I mean, do you see him as a, a creature of a very particular moment or do you think he represents something bigger and more enduring
2: yes the tate phenomenon which as you say is not just andrew tate but there's sort of a a whole
1: yeah he's the face of it i guess
2: yeah i mean the other person i think of in this area is the very online figure of bronze age pervert or bap um who wrote this book bronze age mindset that's become a very like a a conservative phenomenon I think you're exactly right. This is a vision of masculinity that's super basic and sort of tailored to a, a 15-year-old who doesn't know any better. It's all about just like shouting and showing off your cars and your women and your money. And like, that's what being a man is. It's very clear, just like work out and be mean. And it's simple Yeah, and it's on its face appealing because like there are a lot of fast cars and like pretty girls and... I guess that appeals to especially young men who haven't thought about it very much. But I do think it has, again, in the absence of better roadmaps, in the absence of other models, he just presents a very clear, visible model. He's everywhere. You see him everywhere if you're a kid online. And I think that's also part of what has let him be underestimated. His reach is enormous among younger men, like middle school through high school aged kids, they've all heard of Andrew Tate, to the point that actually in Britain, where he's from, there was kind of a campaign last year where teachers in high schools and middle schools were talking amongst themselves about how to combat Tateism in the classroom because these middle schoolers who had watched Andrew Tate videos were getting up in class and telling their female teachers to shut up because they don't listen to women. And that's what Tate taught them. But his video spread on TikTok and YouTube and Facebook, you know, before he was banned from all of those sites. But I think 55-year-old dads weren't necessarily on TikTok and I think didn't realize how much reach he had and how much of a, a hold he had. And the same with all of these kind of online figures who are sort of flying under the radar because they're, they're online, say— I do think it's important what you point out about their amorality. Like, if Jordan Peterson and even to some extent, you know, the, the Josh Hawley figures are saying, well, it's it's good to be a man, but also being a man means being responsible in some way, contributing to society in some way. Um, this, the Tatist version of masculinity is just totally divorced from anything Positive. It's just about defining yourself in opposition to women and taking what you can get and showing off, basically. But it's a clear path, and it feels almost transgressive, too, which I think is part of its appeal, because he's like, call me toxic. I love being toxic. I am toxic masculinity. And to like a a 15-year-old edgelord, that is aspirational, I guess. But it's really ugly, (laughs) and it's not good for society in any way.
1: You know, there is a question lurking here about how, you know, this masculinity crisis intersects with class and race, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know who we're really talking about when we say men are in trouble. I mean, I'm curious what you think of, or when you think of the platonic ideal of the young man in crisis. What does he look like? Is he is he poor, middle class, upper class? Is he white? I mean, obviously, not all men are experiencing this problem equally. When I think about an incel, you know, for instance, right, I think of a certain kind of kid bourgeois, middle, upper class, usually white. But I don't want to reduce this entire problem to just that because it isn't reducible to just that. But does it seem to be affecting a particular demographic in a particularly strong way?
2: Yeah, hashtag not all men. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, No, I think the class distinctions are actually really important. And there's something that I thought about but didn't have as much space to go into as I wanted to in the piece. The piece, as you have read, is already quite long, (laughs) But it could have been much longer. And I do think that the crisis of masculinity is kind of cross-class and cross-racial, but maybe presents itself differently in different spaces. I think for sort of bourgeois, fairly well-educated men at the top of the ladder, it presents as kind of a psychic problem almost. Like, it's not necessarily that you don't have resources, it's just you're not— really sure of how to be a guy on your Ivy League campus. And so you get really into Nietzsche and like intellectualize your problems. (laughs) But I mean, for working class men, that's where you're seeing, you know, like deaths of despair hitting and like this job loss is really hitting there. For Black men, there is, there has long been, I think, a, a sort of crisis of role models because so many Black father figures have been taken out of the community via mass incarceration and elsewhere. So it's a little bit more of an ongoing thing, and there's been actually more community step-in maybe in those places. But you have also seen or saw, he is now dead, the rise of, you know, Kevin Samuels was sort of like the Black influencer version of Andrew Tate and really popular in Black communities. And he had all these YouTube videos about being a high-value man and, like, making fun of low-value women and defining masculinity in that way. And so the anxiety about men's roles in relation to women is clearly visible there too
1: coming up after one more quick break what types of models and mentors could help men right now
3: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work.
1: One of the things I hate about the culture war, at least as it's waged very often by Republicans in particular, is that it's often used to mobilize resentments in a way that doesn't address any of the underlying causes of that resentment. It is so much easier to say that women progressives, elites, are to blame for your problems (laughs) than it is to unpack all of these complicated social and economic transformations, some of which we were talking about earlier. And there's a part of me that just has to believe that maybe not all of these problems, but many of these problems wouldn't be problems if we lived in a more equitable economy, if we lived in richer communities with deeper connections, if precarity and boredom and despair weren't so widespread. I mean, how do you make sense of the lines here? I mean, maybe the problem is so complicated and diffuse that all you can really say is that there are a thousand overlapping causes and it's hard to tease it all out but I, I don't know I'm just curious how you make sense of that
2: no I think that's absolutely right and that's the thing that frustrates me often about the conservative response to this crisis so I write in the piece about Republican Senator Josh Hawley whose book entitled Manhood went on sale and unfortunately the jokes like really really write themselves
1: <laughs> yes they do yes you they
2: do <laughs> Right now, he's writing a book on manhood, but, like, the most famous picture of Josh Hawley is him sort of fist-pumping outside of the January 6th uprising and then just hightailing it, like, heels to butt out down the hall when he's confronted by people in the Capitol. So in his book, he blames the crisis of manhood specifically on liberal elites, Like, that is who he blames. And he basically says it's the elites have ruined manhood and feminists are taking away your manhood. And what you really need to do is sort of go back in time, almost. And he proposes a vision of manhood that basically is like the life that your grandfather lived somehow. Like, a man should work a a union job and be able to provide for his whole family, and that's the ideal. But Josh Hawley how are you going to get there? A, like, what solutions are you offering except this new victim complex where you blame your sadness on women and liberal elites, whoever they are? And then, again, Josh Hawley, it was your party who was in favor of NAFTA. (laughs) Um, And, you know, many of these policies that led to the offshoring of these working class union jobs for men. Um, Are you going to do anything about that? Like, are you taking responsibility for those economic factors? There are things that we could do in America to make the economy more equitable, to make working life fairer, to make it easier to support a family. But where are the policies?
1: Yeah, where indeed. And as you put it in the piece, what this often boils down to is a misplaced desire to belong. And this is a general problem in this society, and maybe it's especially bad for men, but our social lives in the real physical world are so much poorer than they used to be. And belonging is about anchoring our identities in communities. And unfortunately, the easiest way to do this now is to go online. And that's a rather short road to some pretty dark places. And that's kind of what we're talking about with the Tate phenomenon and the rest of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, yes, that is, that is very true. So, One of the points that I make in the essay that I think is, it felt mildly controversial to be making this point was the fact that it was notable that there, and this is something that also almost every young guy who I interviewed for this piece told me, that there were just fewer role models around and especially father figures. You know, many of the young men I talked to told me about how they didn't have a good relationship with their father or their father wasn't around. They grew up in a single parent household. Most of their friends maybe didn't have a great relationship with male relatives, so they didn't really have anywhere to go to sort of learn how to be a man. And that was part of the reason why they felt kind of lost and were looking for these models online. And I do think that that has been a social shift over the past several decades that has really increased, not in you know traditionally marginalized communities, but everywhere. And the young men who seem to have sort of succeeded in some way or had a better grasp on masculinity or told me that they had found a mentor were guys who had found someone in their community somehow. One young guy told me about how his father wasn't really part of his life, but he became friends with sort of a a priest who was a chaplain at his school who sort of took him under his wing and like taught him how to buy nice shoes and like told him to ask women out on dates. And that was what helped him learn how to be a man. And, you know, he went on to talk about this and was sort of like, I think that this is a problem that we don't have these father figures around, but it's hard to imagine a policy solution because you can't mandate community you know, like you can't just, through fiat, assign a father from the government to every young man who's looking for a model or a mentor. So what are you going to do about it? In the past, maybe people would go to church and have an intergenerational friendships or be in clubs or lodges. And even if it wasn't a relative, they might find a mentor there. But there are so many fewer male teachers in the school system you don't see that happening as much anymore. And people just don't join community organizations like they used to.
1: Well, the friendship piece is interesting to me. But I mean, I don't think our culture has a very coherent or wise philosophy of male friendship. And there's already a, a very general loneliness epidemic, really, in the country. And it seems it's even worse for men. Men report having even fewer friends than... Women and that is a recipe for bad things, bad social outcomes, and I think that's part of the piece here. But again, how the hell do you solve that kind of problem with a policy? You know, I I don't, I I don't know how you do that. That's a cultural malaise, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, the U.S. Surgeon General said I think that loneliness was one of the top problems in America, and like the one of the top health problems in America. But again, it's hard to. I don't know that he's proposed like a policy to fix loneliness say and it's hard to imagine what what that would be but i mean you can kind of feel this and it has effects in like a lot of different areas of society right not just masculinity but often masculinity i mean this is kind of a, a side note but if you think about the trump phenomenon and david french wrote like an actually incredible column about this a couple weeks ago one of the reasons why people seem to love going to Trump rallies and being MAGA fans is because they're fun. <laughs> it's like a club. You can like meet people and you all hang out together and like are fans of Trump together. And it's a social thing as much as it is a political thing. And then if you dive into that and think of specifically the Proud Boys, and this is where it turns into a masculinity thing, this group founded by Gavin McGinnis, he talks about it as... A men's fraternity for male friendship and teaching men how to be men. And it eventually devolved or maybe started as basically a right wing hate group where they would go around and like beat up people they had called Antifa and ended up storming the Capitol. But it began as like a group of men who wanted male buddies and they would wear matching shirts and like do silly cereal chugging contests. And it was people were attracted to it because Oh, it's you join a club and there's like a chapter in your city and you can go drinking together and it was about friendship and turned into something ugly.
1: I don't want to let you off the hook here without asking you <laughs> w- what you think a truly healthy masculinity looks like, and I'm actually very interested in your view of that as a woman. I've had similar conversations on the show, but they were with men, and you identify three traits in the piece, you know, protector provider, procreator. And I know a lot of people will hear that and not without reason, immediately think of the patriarchy of yesterday. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a mistake?
2: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Another great question. And I mean, you can hear me giving sort of gusty sighs before each answer, because even through writing the piece, I was kind of wrestling with my reluctance to try and define masculinity or cheer on masculinity too much and like my feel that we actually need to and i don't know one of the things about the piece that seemed to strike a lot of people was like the fact that i admitted that i like men like i like them i want them to be happy and i also do think that there is something distinctive that one could call manhood or masculinity that is a different thing than womanhood, or femininity. So you pulled out the concepts of protector, provider, procreator, and I got those from the anthropologist David Gilmore, who did this cross-cultural study a couple decades ago, looking at what it meant to be a man in all of these different groups across several continents. And he found out that almost every society did have a concept of masculinity that was distinctive from just being male. It was like something that you earned and was also distinctive from being female. And yeah, it had to do with being someone who protected the people around you in your community provided in some way for your family and your site. And that often looked like not just providing, but like creating surplus in some ways and sharing that with others and then procreating like having a family. And that was what being a successful male looked like and in our modern moment I think that can look like a lot of different things I guess when I talk to men there's like a call out in in the essay where I ask people to write in about like what is their ideal of masculinity and why and when I think about masculinity myself there are a couple of attributes that seem to come up a lot and it's stuff like strength used well, Mm -hmm. and responsibility, duty, like performing your duty, looking out for people who are weaker than you. I think that there's a pushback that I get very often. I talked about this earlier in our conversation where people are like, why do you have to say that's being a good man? Why is leadership or ambition or adventurousness a male trait? Aren't women leaders, et cetera, et cetera? And of course, yes. But I do think that being a good person is not a clear enough roadmap. It's not a strong enough, like a clear enough norm, and that's what younger people especially are looking for. I think what it means to be a good person is in some ways tied to your embodiment, your sort of human form as a male person or a female person. And so, for instance, men tend to be though not always much stronger than like the average woman or old person so being a good person if that is your embodiment necessarily means thinking about like what that says about your responsibilities what do you do with that strength that you have say that other people don't have richard reeves talks about how masculinity and femininity or male and female overlap a lot but On the sort of far ends of the spectrum, there are very big differences, and that tends to be where sort of our definitions of male and female come from, and I I think that's valuable, too.
1: Well, that's one of the frustrations for me in this climate is that I I do find it very difficult to live in the nuance on, on virtually any topic, but especially something like this where the topic really cries out. For nuance, and you know, it's true, you you can't talk about masculinity and femininity without acknowledging some differences between the sexes. And yet, that acknowledgement is utterly compatible with the reality that much of what we call gender is a performance, is a cultural construct. And and I don't know why we seem unable to avoid this zero-sum trap. I mean, you see this in lots of other cultures where there's a respect for the masculine and feminine ideal. There's no zero-sum relationship. These are poles at opposite ends of the continuum. And possessing virtues at both ends of the spectrum is seen, rightly, as wise and healthy. I I don't know why we can't do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. America really likes extremes. I think we really like things that are very clear-cut and are one or the other. Or we are used to seeing things that are very clear-cut one end or the other and seeing them used to marginalize people or somehow denigrate people who don't fit the exact norms. And I think people who think of themselves as, you know, good progressives and liberals, like, really don't want to do that and so shy away from espousing norms because they might leave someone out. And I understand that, but I... For the people who are asking for... A roadmap, like tell me who to be, saying, Oh, just like be whoever you want to be, but be a good one. It's just not helpful. And I've had this argument with commenters on the piece and people online a lot where they're like, Well, you know, I just I just don't think that we need to have a norm for masculinity. I don't, as a you know, 50-year-old like successful man, like I know who I am, and I don't think we need to have a norm. And it's kind of like, that's great for you. And I know that you think that's the truth, but there are people literally crying out for a norm saying, please help me. <laughs> so what are you going to give them? And I also think that there's an age thing here. And I noticed this in responses to the piece, too. Often there were older men who would write in her like, what's the problem? I'm a man. I feel great about it. I don't see the issue. And sort of like, that's great for you. But for young people, I think... When you're young, you just, like, don't have that much life experience. You're trying to figure out who to be. And maybe having something of a norm or some sort of ideal, even if it's loose, can be helpful to, like, point you in a direction. And then as you grow older and you get life experience and you figure out how you fit in the world, you make the norm up for yourself. But they're looking for a starting point.
1: Did you read that really wonderful essay by Phil Crispin? It's called What's It Like to Be a Man? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but he suggests in that that even the category non-binary probably does and probably should apply to all of us, really, to one degree or another, because, again, these traits are sprinkled across a continuum. Most of us have traits or instincts at at various points along that continuum, even though there are clusters. There's no need for this rigidity, you know? It, right. It's it's a really juvenile, unhelpful binary.
2: Yeah, I think that you can say that masculinity specifically is a good thing or that there are ways to be a good man, but there are also a lot of different models for how to be a good man. Not everyone has to be John Wayne.
1: I've also very often felt like it's, I think it's a massive blind spot in our culture that we don't have what other cultures I guess would call a rite of passage You know, for young men. There is this need for a lot of boys, and I'm sure girls too, but it's especially strong with boys too test yourself to test your strength, court danger and learn something about yourself on the other side. And we just don't have any ritualized form of this where men shepherd other men into manhood. What we have instead is a lot of young men doing incredibly stupid shit and getting themselves hurt and killed and hurting and killing other people at far greater rates than women. And I say all that just to kind of echo this broader point about the need to be honest about that reality and find ways to channel these instincts to more socially desirable ends. Because if we don't, well, we can see what you get is the Andrew tatification of men.
2: Yeah, I think that's um a really important point and goes back to so again, David Gilmore, this anthropologist I mentioned and many other anthropologists have also identified this idea of a rite of initiation or a rite of passage when it comes to defining manhood in a lot of cultures because of sort of development differences. Like as a woman, you know, you reach menarch, like you get your period and it's there and you sort of know that that's happened and you can now have children. It's sort of a very visible breakpoint in some ways. And obviously men go through puberty, but it's I think it's like not as clear. And so it does seem that many societies have, in the absence of a sort of visible change, created this, whether it's like you go on a vision quest or you're apprenticed apprentice to like some other man or some way of turning a young male into a man that is sort of a, a ceremony and a rite of passage that you can look back on as a transition point. And a lot of the people who... I interviewed and talked to and who responded to the call-out mentioned something like this. Richard Reeves actually has some interesting riffs on this. He talks about, in sort of lamenting the lack of male teachers in schools, he notes that one of the problems with that is that there are fewer male coaches for male sports. And often it was sort of sports teams and sort of the regimented life of male sports that turned into a sort of rite of initiation for men or Boy Scouts and, like, becoming an Eagle Scout with your Scout leader who teaches you how to be a Scout. And there are fewer of these kind of male spaces, in a way, where that sort of transition with leadership happens.
1: I do like the idea of getting more male teachers into these K through 12 classrooms. And we, we talked a little bit about that with Richard Reeves. But, you know, we had a a sharp listener wrote in and, and made, a, I think, a pretty good point, which is that, yeah, we, there is a, a lack of male teachers. But one of the reasons for that is because men and male institutions historically have prescribed work and work with children as women's work. And so women internalized those values, and so did men. And that's one of the reasons we're in this predicament. And you know that doesn't really help us get out of it, but it is an important thing to note. It's one of the reasons we got here. We didn't just fall into it.
2: Yeah, and in some ways, it's a bit of a chicken-egg situation, right? Yeah. Like, which came first? Because actually, if you look at the history of teaching, teaching was a male profession for a really, really long time. Yeah. So, in some ways, there's also a question of, okay, how would we entice men back into those professions? And I think then, also, we get back to this problem from... The left and progressives where it's like, entice men? Haven't we done enough for men? <laughs> Do we really need to give men scholarships? But if you really want to change the dynamics somehow, it will be a sort of social and norms change. And that actually does take time and incentives.
1: It's going to be a long cultural and political project. I think we both probably agree that the left has got to find a way through this discomfort. We need a confident story to tell that's inspiring and empowering to men, but one that isn't weighed down by regressive hierarchies. You know, And, a, and a, an interesting challenge for the left that I think you hinted at earlier is that this is an area in which the openness of the left, the kind of live and let live mentality, the refusal for good reasons to say, this is the way to live and this is the way to be, leaves them at a disadvantage to conservatives who are very clear about their values and the hierarchies that follow from those values. And it's easy for them to say, this is the way it was, and it was good and true and right. They know the story. They know the story they're telling. They have their meta-narratives. you know. And (laughs) and what the left can't do, and I think you say this explicitly, is it can't just say masculinity as such is toxic. There has got to be an affirmative vision, something positive and concrete. Otherwise, what you get is just a negation. And that's not enough because it makes the masculinity we're left with nothing but just crude, dumb anti-femininity. And that that's a road to nowhere, or it's a road to ugly places.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I do think that that is one of the biggest challenges for the left when it comes to masculinity and also when it comes to policy more generally. You know, it's not enough to just criticize or say that something is bad. We have to provide a beautiful vision, an aspirational vision that people want and are drawn to. If you're a man, say, are you more attracted to someone who says, like, these qualities about you are great. We support them. Here's how you do them better. Or someone who says, "Uh, they're toxic, actually. They suck. And um, yeah, that's all we've got for you. Like, there has to be a positive vision for any any policy, any movement. Otherwise, people don't want to go there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a son. You know, he's four years old. He's a kind of a recurring character on the pod. Uh, he's a recurring character on the pod, I guess, because parenthood at the moment is such a huge part of my life experience now. So I, it's kind of, I can't help but end up talking about it. <laughs> because he's four, he's too young to have come to me and, and said, you know, Dad, what what does it mean to be a good man? You know, I, I don't have a simple answer and to the extent I do have answers it doesn't sound like an answer to the question what is it like to be a good man it sounds like the answer to the question what is it like or what does it mean to be a good human being you know i mean tell the truth be kind care about suffering be physically and mentally strong and be brave and vulnerable laugh cry as much as possible you know i mean it's a rambling answer and i, I obviously i'm going to need a better one maybe for me it, it doesn't really matter what i say I, the job of, of me as a dad is to just model what it means to be a good human being and a good man. Hopefully that serves him well. But I don't know if you're a parent or not, but um, do you have a better answer to that question? <laughs> Can you give me one? What would, If you did have a son, assuming you don't, and he asked you that question after having thought about this, well, what would you say?
2: Oh, that's, that's so interesting. So one of the things that I heard a lot in response to this piece too, was that from parents who are like, you know, I've given a lot of thought about how to raise a strong woman or, you know, like my little girl to be a feminist, but I never really thought about how to raise a son to be a good man. It's just like not something we think about as clearly. I think that the answer that you gave is is kind of as good as any. I do still kind of go back to that embodiment question in a way too, where, you know, I would sort of like note some of these features, like, oh, you're like a boy and that girl is a lot, smaller than you you should probably not hit her you have an unfair advantage here like what do those specific things that come with being a boy entail maybe i would think about that too but i don't know um a lot of people sort of called out um kind of old codes for masculinity in their responses to what the ideal masculinity is and i did think that a lot of them were really interesting there's the rudyard kipling poem if which is, you know, problematic in in a number of ways, but is a sort of really interesting discourse on how to be a man. There is Cardinal John Henry Newman's The Model of a Gentleman, which talks about how a man makes people comfortable in his presence and is never overwhelming, and, like, it's his job to sort of shepherd the weak and stand up for them. Someone else quoted The Cowboy's Code, which talks about how a man should be nice to old people and animals, be a patriot, have skills and know how to use them. And it's like kind of old fashioned and it's every stanza is framed as a cowboy, but it was actually kind of nice. And I wonder if there is a way, I think, to look to past models, which stuck around, I think, because they did resonate with a lot of men and a lot of people found them useful over the years and see what good there is there and try and take that resonant good and bring it forward, while being careful to begin to separate out what is no longer useful or what is bad.
1: Maybe the point here is, there are many ways to be a good man, and not all of them require deadlifting 500 pounds or riding horses. (laughs) It was a true pleasure to talk to you again, Christine. I encourage everyone to go and read your really wonderful and admirably nuanced piece. And congratulations again on your friend of a pod status. Checks in the mail.
2: Amazing. Hopefully I'll come back again. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Julian, we need to do the credits now. Now you say. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Oh, that was so good. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solin is our fact checker. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Special thanks to Caitlin Buguki. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at box.com. If you dug this episode, share the link with your friends on all these socials. All right, last thing. Okay, okay last thing you got to say. And remember, new episodes of The Gray Area. Now drop on Monday. Listen and subscribe. Listen and subscribe. (laughs) Yeah.